Thanks, Chris. Turn with me to Mark, the book of Mark, chapter 6. Again, our text for this day is Mark, chapter 6, the first six verses. Uh, This coming week, thousands of athletes are going to be returning home all over the world from London, and their families and communities have watched and witnessed their accomplishments, and now they will throw parties and parades in celebration of their homecoming heroes. It's fascinating as we turn to Mark chapter 6 because what we have is Christ's homecoming. Uh, He returns to Nazareth. Uh, This is where he grew up. This is where he lived with his brothers and sisters. Uh, Likely, in all likelihood, this is where he buried his stepfather, Joseph. This is where he attended community functions. This is where he attended funerals and weddings. This is where he learned a trade, and this is where he worked. He's been gone for a little while, preaching and healing, and as a result, a great crowd is following him from one side of Galilee to the other. And the people from his hometown have heard the reports that uh, Christ's name has become known, Jesus. Everyone is talking about Jesus. Everyone is talking about this man who grew up in our midst. This man who lived in that home just down the street around the corner. This man who used to play with my little Zephaniah. This man who made the table that we eat our supper from every evening. Jesus. Everyone is talking about Jesus. And then all of a sudden... He returns home. And in the first six verses, we read of his welcome. We read of his homecoming. And so follow along as I read this text of Scripture for us. He, that is Christ, went away from there and came to his hometown, Nazareth. And his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives, And in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there. Except that he laid his hands on a few sick people. And healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages. Teaching. So there you have it. A hero come home. A man who has gone out. And whose name. Is now spoken of in every quarter. Every area. Every region. He has returned home. It's homecoming. And how does his hometown receive him? We can sum up their reception, their welcome, in three words. And you've already guessed it. It's not particularly warm. It's not a warm welcome. 
We can sum it up in three words. The first is this. They are astonished. Look at the second verse. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. Now we have a parallel account in the book of Luke, chapter 4. And Luke fills in some important blanks. He gives us a little more detail. And Luke tells us that when the Lord Jesus entered the synagogue on this particular Sabbath, he picked up a scroll, this ancient parchment. He unrolled this scroll, and it was the book of Isaiah. And he quoted the following words, in part, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Then he rolled the scroll back up, gave it back to the synagogue official, sat down, and then added these words. Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. You can imagine the silence. The silence must have been deafening. Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. The Lord has anointed me. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim good news to the poor. He is making direct reference back to what? His baptism in the Jordan River. What happened at the Jordan when the Lord Jesus emerged from the water? The Spirit of God was seen descending like a dove upon the Lord Jesus. The Father spoke audibly a wonderful proclamation. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. It was Jesus' anointing. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah, anointed by the Spirit of God, testifying to what? That he is God's anointed, testifying to what? That he is the Son of God. Now he comes home. He's been away for a little while. The place where he grew up. Enters the synagogue. Everyone's thrilled to see him. They know all about him. They've been hearing all the reports. He takes the scroll. That's great. He's going to read for us. He reads, oh, my favorite book, Isaiah, that's wonderful. Oh, a text concerning the Messiah, that's beautiful. And then to their utter horror, he sits down and then adds this statement, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What's the response? Look again at verse 2. And on the Sabbath day, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished. Astonishment is a combination of surprise and amazement. What did he just say? What did he just claim? They are astonished by this claim he has just made in their presence. They are astonished and they begin to reason to themselves. They begin to ponder the evidence, saying, in the middle of verse 2, it's a good question. It's an appropriate question. Where did this man get These things. What things are they talking about? They mention specifically two things. Where did this man get these things? First of all, what do they want to know? It's this. What is the wisdom given to him? He's just made a tremendous, outlandish claim to be the Lord's anointed, to be the promised Messiah, the promised Christ, to be the Son of God. Where did he get these things? And in particular, as we ponder the evidence and who he is, what is this wisdom given to him? You think on the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we see his wisdom in many ways. We see the depth of his understanding. In John chapter 7, it's recorded in John chapter 7, he goes up 
to Jerusalem during the feast. I think it's the Feast of Tabernacles. And he's preaching and teaching in the temple. And we read the following. The Jews marveled. How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? The depth of his understanding is astonishing. The force of his reasoning is astonishing. On another occasion, the Sadducees come to him. The Sadducees do not believe in the resurrection. And so they come up with this implausible, hypothetical situation of a woman who was married at different times to seven different brothers. In the resurrection, whose wife will she be? To which of these men will she belong? You can picture them snickering to themselves in their little group there. We've got them. We've just shown the absurdity of the resurrection. The Lord Jesus takes them back to the only book in the Bible which they put any credence to, which is the the law, the books of Moses, takes them all the way back to Exodus, Moses himself. And it reminds them of that incident when Moses is out in the wilderness shepherding those sheep and God appears to Moses in the burning bush and God introduces, identifies himself to Moses with these words, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. Those three men had already been dead hundreds of years. So how is it God says to Moses, I am their God is because he is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. What is their response? When the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching, the force, the power of his reasoning. And the content of his teaching is astonishing. As he embarks on his ministry and the crowd gathers around him, he takes his disciples up on that mount. And we find recorded in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, A wonderful sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And there the Lord Jesus declares, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, blessed are those who are aware of their sin. Blessed are those who are conscious of their sin before a holy God, for theirs and theirs alone is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who repent of their sin. Blessed are those who are mournful in spirit because of their sin against God. They alone shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who realize they are nothing before Almighty God. Blessed are those who understand, who really take it to heart, that God owes them nothing. That the only plea they have is for God's mercy and God's grace. Why? Because they alone shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Why? They alone shall be satisfied. And on and on it goes. And at the end of this beautiful sermon, we read the following words. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. The depth of his understanding is astonishing. The force of his reasoning is astonishing. And the content of his teaching, his message, is astonishing. Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? We know him. I live next door to him. He played with my boys. They went to the same school. They read the same books. They heard the same things. They learned the same things. And I remember when he apprenticed as as a carpenter, and he does pretty good work, and he's been gone a little while now. How is it possible that he has such wisdom? From where did he get such understanding? They are astonished. 
The second reason they're astonished is this. Where did this man get these things? They're not only interested in the origin of his wisdom, what is the wisdom given to him, but they're interested, very interested, in the origin of his power. Look at the last question in verse 2. How are such mighty works done by his hands? They do not question these mighty works. Uh, They know of these mighty works. They believe he has performed these mighty works. Their astonishment, their amazement, and their perplexity arises from this inability to to reconcile who he is, this man who grew up in their midst, and this fact that now he is performing mighty works. You think of the context in which this passage is set, and what has just been translated to us going all the way back to chapter 4, verse 35, up to the end of chapter 5, and there we see the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see his power over the deep. Christ and the disciples, they're in that little boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. Terrible tempest, terrible storm. The Lord Jesus is sleeping. The disciples think they're about to die. They awaken the Lord Jesus with a word, peace be still. He muzzles the deep, the storm. And then they arrive at the other side of the sea. And there we see his power over the demon. Not merely a demon, singular demons, legion. Why is he called legion? Because we are many. And they possess a man who is out of control, beyond human control. A man whom his family, his his kinfolk, his community members, colleagues, sought to tie and bind and subdue with chains. And they cannot control him. And with a word, the Lord Jesus casts legion out of this man. There the man sits in his right mind. And then the Lord Jesus traverses the sea again, back to the other side from where he had come. And now we see his power over disease. That this crowd throngs around him as he makes his way to the house of a synagogue official named Jairus. And there is this woman, undetected, nameless, who makes her way, sneaks through the crowd, silently quietly, stretching out her hand to touch the fringe of his garment, immediately power, dunamis, dynamite, goes out from him, and she is healed. How long has that woman been sick? Twelve years. And then we see his power over death. He arrives at the home of Jairus, the synagogue official, and there his 12-year-old daughter lies dead. And the Lord Jesus utters this wonderful, tender, compassionate statement. Little girl, I say to you, arise. Authority. Authority over the deep, creation. Authority over the demon. Authority over disease. Authority over death. Uh, Where did this man, this is their question, look again at the second verse. Where did this man get such power? How are such mighty works done by his hands? We know him. And and we remember him. And he never did anything like that while he lived with us. And he never appeared to be anything particularly special. He ate what we ate. He drank what we drank. He lived like we lived. From where did he get this power? From where did he get this authority? How are such mighty works done by his hands? And so they contemplate his declaration. 
They contemplate his affirmation at the outset of the verse when he reads from the scroll, this day I tell you, this is fulfilled in your hearing. I am the Lord's anointed. They now seek to reconcile that with what they know to be true about him, what they know to be true about his wisdom. They do not deny it. The question is this, where did he get it from? His power, they do not deny it. The question is this, where did he get it from? And they are there in startled, surprised amazement. It can only be described as astonishment. That is the first word. The second word is this, the narrative moves on, doesn't it? They are scandalized. They are scandalized. Look with me now at verses 3 and 4. Their questioning doesn't end. Is not this the carpenter? That's his trade. He was apprenticed as a carpenter. Many of us own the things he made. Uh, is, that, is not this the son of Mary? She still lives with us. The brother of James. These are half-brothers, half-siblings. And Joses and Judas and Simon. And are not his sisters here with us? And so they are astonished on the one hand as they hear his claim and as they consider and contemplate and are confronted with his power and wisdom which they cannot explain. And yet on the other hand, they cannot let go of the boy, of the young man, of the adult that they once knew. And they cannot reconcile what they now know to be true with their opinion and their impression of him. And so what's their response right there at the end of verse 3? And they took offense at him. The word in the Greek is scandalizo, from which we get the word scandalized. They are scandalized by him. Why? We need a little, we need a little more information here. Luke gives it to us. Because Luke tells us in his account that the Lord Jesus, as Mark records here in verse 4, that the Lord Jesus responds, a prophet is not without honor. So a prophet receives honor. A prophet is not without honor, except where? In his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. Luke records that statement as well, but then Luke fills in an important blank. He tells us that the Lord Jesus' rebuke of his hometown doesn't stop there. He then appeals to two incidents from the Old Testament. The first concerns the prophet Elijah. And he says, you remember in the days of Elijah, there was a terrible famine. Well, God, how did he sustain his prophet Elijah? He sent him to a woman, a widow, who lived in Sidon, who was a Gentile. Guess what? There were plenty of widows in Israel, but God did not send Elijah to any of them. And in the days of Elisha, this is the second incident, you remember that there were lots of lepers in Israel, but one in particular, a man named Naaman, a Syrian, a Gentile, God healed him through Elisha's ministry. The point is what? The point is this. History is repeating itself. Your ancestors did not receive Elijah's testimony or prophetic witness. He went to a Gentile. Elisha. Your ancestor did not receive his prophetic ministry and prophetic witness. He went to a Gentile. Guess what? History is repeating itself. A prophet is not without honor except where? In his hometown. In his own household. And he is pointing to what? His future ministry to whom? The Gentiles. 
Do you remember their response and reaction as recorded in Luke chapter 4? What do they do? Anybody remember? They try to throw him over a cliff. They are scandalized. Astonishment on the one hand. Surprised amazement. We know him. How is he able to teach such things? Wisdom, where did it come from? Power, mighty works. We don't question it. We don't doubt it. Where did it come from? What's that he says? That that, that our reluctance to believe in him, our reluctance to accept his testimony, our reluctance, our hesitancy to accept that he is who he claims to be, the Lord's anointed. What's that he says? That that now puts us in the same category as our ancestors who rejected the prophetic witness of Elijah and Elisha, and now he's going to go to the Gentiles? I've got an idea. Throw him over the cliff. They are offended, and they are scandalized. Can I insert a thought here just for a moment? I I pray it will be profitable. The thought is this. I don't think I'm reading too much into it or reading between the lines. Where is siblings? That's horrendous. Stop and think about it for a moment. Where are his siblings? Where are his brothers and his sisters? At this stage in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, they did not believe in him. I have no doubt they are numbered among the mob. Now, why I raise that is for pastoral reasons. Let me just stand over here for a minute. Pastoral reasons. There's an important pastoral implication here. Friend, have you ever experienced rejection? When we experience rejection, and we all do at some point, our knee-jerk reaction is to think what? We're alone. No one has ever been through this. Friend, Christian, I want you to understand that we have a great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has been tempted in all things as we have and who sympathizes with our weaknesses. The Lord Jesus knows what it is to be rejected. Years ago, I was in the country of Sudan and sitting, enjoying a meal with a a young brother, uh, Sudanese, from a, from a Muslim family. He had been converted, saved, wonderfully, miraculously, maybe a year earlier, and uh, now working with Youth for Christ. And he related to me his experience that when he became a Christian, that was it. There's the front door. He was ostracized, cut off from his family. He was a student at the university, and on his student identification card, Uh, It listed his age, birthplace, family name, all those sorts of things. And it always lists your religion. And if you're not Muslim, you're not allowed to study at the university. He went to his academic supervisor with a problem, perplexed. Uh, You see this? I'm no longer a Muslim. I'm a Christian. His academic supervisor's advice? Keep quiet. What they don't know won't hurt them. His conscience wouldn't allow him to do that. He went to the, the administrator, acknowledged that he was a Christian, The next day, he lost his place at the university. This young man had lost everything. This young man had been rejected by everyone he had ever known. This young man had and has a great high priest at the right hand of the majesty on high who is able, friend, Christian, believe this and hold on to it for all your worth, who is able, who does sympathize with our weaknesses because he has been tested, tempted in all that we Experience. What is Christ thinking at this moment? 
What is he feeling? These are his people. This is his hometown. And they're seeking to hurl him over a cliff's edge. They are scandalized. The third word is this. They are hardened. So in addition to being astonished, verse 2, in addition to being scandalized, verses 3 and 4, they are hardened, verses 5 and 6. And he, again, that's the Lord Jesus, could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Now that phrase, be careful, because many have made a mess out of this text. He could do no mighty work there. Mark is not implying, he is not suggesting that the power of the Lord Jesus Christ to perform a mighty work, or the power of the Lord Jesus Christ to heal someone miraculously was somehow curbed, impeded, prohibited, somehow influenced by the lack of faith of, as demonstrated in, in, his, in his kinfolk, in those living in his hometown. That's not Mark's point. Understand it. Put it in the context. These people believed the Lord Jesus had the power to perform mighty acts. That's not up for debate. Look back at verse 2. How are such mighty works done by his hands? They don't deny that. They don't doubt it. Mark isn't saying, well, look, if these people only had a little more faith, if if their quality of their faith was only stronger, then somehow they could dominate and dictate what the Lord Jesus would do and he would perform mighty acts. But because they have no faith in his power to perform mighty acts, therefore he can't perform mighty acts. That, that, That is a horrendous interpretation of the verse. They believe he can perform mighty acts. That is not an issue. That is not up for debate. What is it they don't believe? They don't believe he's the Son of God. They don't believe what he has claimed when he opened the scroll, the book of Isaiah, and read from it and then declared, Today this is fulfilled in your hearing. That is what they do not believe. They do not believe in his person. The question is not his ability. The question is his identity. That's what they won't believe. And because they do not believe he is the Messiah, they do not believe he is the Christ, They do not believe he is the Son of God. They do not go to him. They do not want any mighty works performed by his hands. They are rejecting him. And what's Christ's response, the sixth verse? He marveled. He marveled because of their unbelief. This is the one who sees to the heights of heaven, the marvels above. This is the one who sees to the depths of the bed of the deepest oceans and the marvels below in the deep. And yet here he is marveled because of what? Unbelief. He marveled. Why? Because of their unbelief, they ignore the obvious. Think about it, friend. They are standing in his presence before him. They can touch him. They've heard his words of wisdom. They've seen his powerful acts. And yet they have rejected it all. He marvels because of their unbelief and because they ignore the obvious. Because of their unbelief, they elevate the unimportant. Here they stand in the presence of divine power. 
and divine wisdom. Think of the words recorded in Daniel chapter 2, verse 20. Power and wisdom belong to God. Here they stand in the presence of one who manifests and exercises divine power, divine wisdom. There is only one rational conclusion. We are in the presence of the Son of God. But because of their unbelief, they elevate the unimportant. Is not this the carpenter? What has his trade got to do with anything? Don't you think they would be, they would be dumbstruck and they would fall at his feet, the presence of divine power and divine wisdom, and all they can concern themselves with is the trivial, the unimportant. Is this not the carpenter? Because of their unbelief, they actually attack the messenger. Over the cliff, he must go. As the Lord Jesus is confronted with their unbelief, unbelief whereby they ignore the obvious, unbelief whereby they elevate the unimportant, and unbelief whereby they actually attack the messenger, the Lord Jesus Christ marvels because of their unbelief. And what's his response? Look at the rest of verse 6. And he went about among the villages teaching. And guess what? To the best of our knowledge, he never returned to Nazareth. He never returned home again. Off he went among the villages teaching. Now there are six lessons, six points of application I want to make from all of this. They're not in any, they're in some order, but not in any real definitive order. But, but, but six truths, principles, that leap out at us from the written word of God that I pray the Spirit will impress upon us this day. The first is this, and we dare not miss it. Uh, This text shows us, affirms for us, that Christ is both God and man. Christ, the Lord Jesus, is both God and man. He is God by his own affirmation when he claims to be the Messiah as prophesied in the book of Isaiah. He is God as seen in his divine power and his divine wisdom. But so too, friends, never lose sight of his humanity. When he returns home, those who knew him, they received him as what? A man. There was never any question or doubt in their minds. He is a man. You fast forward into the opening centuries of the early church and this movement known as Gnosticism and some of the writings that emerged written by Gnostics. The one thing they sought to deny was Christ's humanity. Why? Because they could not reconcile the physical with the spiritual. Why? Because they thought the physical was inherently evil. And so they wrote these books and they wrote these fanciful accounts of Christ's childhood. And it's just silly, most of it. There's this fanciful accounts of the things he did whereby they sought to downplay, if not outright deny, his humanity because they viewed the humanity as evil. Friends, never lose sight nor grasp of Christ's humanity. He is both God and man. He is fully God. And praise God, he is fully man. He possesses both natures the divine and the human. They are not fused. They are not intermingled. They remain distinct in one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is so important on so many levels. Just fast forward to Calvary's cross. If he had not been the God-man, he could not have been a sacrifice for our sins. If he had not been fully man, he could not have taken you or my place at Calvary's cross. He had to take our flesh. He had to take our humanity. 
He had to become like us in all things in order to be our substitute at Calvary's cross. But if he had only been a mere man, he could never have paid that infinite price for our sin. It is by virtue of his deity that efficacy is given to his substitutionary sacrifice at Calvary's cross, whereby sin could be imputed to him without ever tainting him, because he is fully God. Fully God, fully man, one person, the Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore a perfect substitute at Calvary's cross. Second truth is this. Unbelief. And this is difficult for many of us to grasp. Unbelief is moral. What do I mean by that? Let me, state, let me state what is the common position. For many people, many people equate unbelief with the intellectual. They, 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 they reason to themselves. The reason so-and-so doesn't believe is because they lack evidence. Or I've even heard people say, well, I'm a thinking individual. And I can't just take things by faith. None of that makes any sense in the light of Scripture. Unbelief, friend, is not intellectual. Unbelief is moral. When we refuse to believe in what the Word of God says and teaches, when we refuse to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we do not do so for intellectual reasons. We do so for moral reasons, meaning what? We don't like the truth. That is why people do not believe. Think of his hometown. Think of what these people hear. His wisdom. Think of what these people see. His power. His mighty works. What greater evidence do they need? The issue is not evidence. What is the issue? They have no appetite for the evidence. They dislike the evidence. As a matter of fact, they hate the evidence. Therefore, they do not believe. J.C. Ryle pens, Let us observe the people of Nazareth and learn wisdom. They saw his miracles and heard his preaching, and they rejected him. I've heard it countless times. If only the Lord Jesus would appear to me. If only the Lord Jesus would show me. If only the Lord Jesus would do some miracle, I'd believe. No, you wouldn't. Because your problem is not proof. My problem is not evidence. Our problem is not intellectual. Our problem is moral. We have a natural antipathy, enmity toward the truth. Third principle is this. This one's also very important. It comes right out of these verses. Familiarity breeds contempt. You know that phrase, don't you? Familiarity breeds contempt. That explains his hometown. Friend, it explains some in this room. Raised in a Christian home, know the stories. Heard this story a hundred times. Know the scriptures. Know the doctrines. And yet do not know Christ. Familiarity breeds contempt. Friend, I beg of you, do not be so familiar, overly familiar with Christ to such a degree that you do not know him. To know Christ is to love him. To know Christ is to embrace him. To know Christ is to rest 
in him. What a calling and what a responsibility as we get into the word of God, as we take what has been entrusted to us and what we know to be true, as we've heard the word of God for so many years, to internalize it and to make it our own and to guard against this ever-lurking temptation, a real temptation, whereby familiarity breeds contempt. Fourth truth is this. Rejection is painful but normal. Rejection is painful but Normal. What's coming in the text? In the seventh verse, do you know what the Lord Jesus does? He sends out his 12 disciples. What's the relationship between what's just happened in the first six verses and the Lord Jesus now sending out his 12 disciples? I've given you authority. Now, on you go. Preach. Talk about encouraging. They just witnessed what happened to him. They just witnessed his reception in his hometown. They just witnessed his utter rejection. They just witnessed his own people wanting to throw him over the edge of the cliff. Now he says to them, look, I'm giving you authority. Now I want you to go out and preach. What is he preparing them for? You're not going out on a holiday. You're going out to suffer. You're going out to be rejected. But understand this, rejection is normal. Understand this, rejection places you in my camp. Understand this, they will not treat the servants any better than they have treated the master. Understand this, if you're going to follow me, pick up your cross and do so. Enough of the fooling around. Enough of the half measures. Enough of the, well, I like this, I don't like that. I'll do this, I don't do that. No, it is all or it is nothing. You are in or you are out. He's teaching them an invaluable lesson of what it means to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not a cakewalk. This is not going to be just a happy mountaintop experience along the way. No, you are going to experience what you just saw me experience. You are going to understand that, yes, I'm inaugurating the kingdom. But this is a transitional period of hostility when the seed of the woman will still wage war with the seed of the serpent and vice versa. And you will be rejected. You will be persecuted. He wants no misunderstanding. Friend, I pray you have no misunderstanding of what it means to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, of what it means to be numbered with Christ, of what it means to be numbered with Christ in the midst of a world, in the midst of a society which deep down inside despises the Lord Jesus Christ, despises the truth, who for moral, not intellectual reasons, despises what God has revealed and made so clear in the word of God. It's not a pretty picture I'm painting here. I realize that, but it is reality. The promises, friend, we have precious and wonderful promises which extend to the present life whereby the spirit of God will sustain us. God will keep us. God will protect us. But the promises that we will be comforted, the promises that we will inherit eternal life, the promises that we will enter the final consummation of the kingdom, they are all future. And so we are called to walk by what? Faith. We are called to walk in what? Hope. As we look to the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he has promised to us. The fifth lesson truth is this. Saving grace can transform the hardest heart. How do we get that out of the text? Saving grace can transform the hardest heart. Go back to verse 4. 
A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. At this stage of his ministry, his own household rejects him. Go back up into verse 3 and look at who's listed there. He is the brother of James. You fast forward in the New Testament toward the end and you find a book called what? James. What does James say in the very first verse? James, servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I get it now. I get what I did not get then. I hear it now, what he claimed then. The penny has dropped, the power, the wisdom, who he is, his time of humiliation, what he accomplished at Calvary's cross. What a wonderful testimony to this truth. Saving grace can transform the hardest heart. And the sixth lesson is this. Faith. In the words of Richard Sibbs, is marriage of the soul to Christ. Faith is marriage of the soul to Christ. Their failure wasn't to believe that Christ was a wise man. They believed it. Big deal. Their failure wasn't to believe that the Lord Jesus did wonderful things, mighty miracles. They believed it. Big deal. Their failure was to believe what? In the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Their failure was to close with Christ by faith. When we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are not simply believing in a list of propositional truths concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. We are believing in a person. And our faith knits us together with him in an eternal union, whereby our delight becomes his delight, whereby we sing, Fairest Lord Jesus, ruler of all nature, O thou of God and man the Son, thee will I cherish, thee will I honor, thou my soul's glory, joy, and crown. Bow with me as we conclude in prayer. Our Father, the unfolding of your word gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. It humbles the proud. It strengthens the weak. It comforts the discouraged. Bless, we pray, what we have heard to the building up of our faith. Our eyes long for your salvation and for the fulfillment of your promises. Until then, cause us to hope in you. Be gracious to us, as is your way with those who love you. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.